check one, two. You'll find it. Okay, guys, um, if you would, turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. We, um, we started last week taking a look at encounters with Jesus. And as I began to continue to read through the Gospels, all these different encounters that people have with Jesus, it just dawned on me that when, when, the, when the Son of God, when Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, when he, when he chose to come into this earth, on, on, into this world, into this existence, taking on flesh, he could have, he could have mixed it up, he could have um, engaged any number of people, any number of social classes, any number of um, institutions, uh, you know, we, we, we look at him and his example that he set for us, and I, I start to, to really have to come to grips with this understanding that, that Jesus intentionally engaged and spent his time really encountering and working with a certain group of people. And I, I, as I started to really look at this and, and have to wrestle with this a little bit, it, it really has challenged me to understand if this is his example, if, if this is where the Son of God, if he, if he had a limited amount of time on this earth, which we know he did, right? And even his ministry, most believe, wasn't any longer than maybe three to three and a half years. So let's just say he had three years, three years of, of full-time, on-the-ground, engaging people ministry. And we look at his life and we look at the people that he spent the most time with, the, the amount of time that he spent engaging a certain group of people. And I started to ask myself, he could have done it any way that he chose to do, and yet this was how he chose to do it. There must be a reason for that. There must be a purpose for that. And that's what I really want to get down to at the end of the day, is that if this was the way Jesus chose to do ministry, in his limited amount of time that he had on this earth, then maybe that is the way that he intended us to do ministry. And so, Jesus, we know, he came humbly. Just the fact that the Son of God would take on human form, would take on flesh, that was a humiliating act in and of itself. We know that. And he spent more time, as we look at the Gospels, and this is what's really profound to me, is that he spent more time engaging the people that we would consider the marginalized of society, the outcasts the lame, the sick, the poor, the beggars, the sinners. Most of the people who are typically looked down upon in what we would call our society, especially today and from more of a sophisticated social class structure, um, these are people that were typically looked down on in society. And to put it you know, bluntly or to put it simply is that the title of my message is this, Jesus Runs with a rough crowd. Now that, that, that title may be provocative to you, and I, and, I, and I said it that way intentionally, because the whole concept of the way Jesus did ministry, in my opinion, the more and more I look at it, it is very provocative. It is contrary, it's countercultural, okay? Especially when we look at the modern church here in North America and the way that we typically, quote unquote, 
do ministry, the people that we engage, the people that we spend the most time with. Sometimes when I look at those two things side by side, I'm saying, wait a minute, the, what the, the example that Jesus set before us, is, it looks a lot different than really what we've made church to be or ministry to be. And I hope today's message will hope, you know, challenge, maybe it'll convict some of you. It's definitely convicted me as I've studied this passage of scripture. So, you know, when, when the Son of God entered into this world, he did not come demanding an audience with, with Caesar, the, the, the emperor of Rome. He did not come demanding an audience with governors and the intellectual elites and the religious establishment and the rich, wealthy class of his generation. Now, we know he, in, he did interact with those people from time to time. But if we look at the interactions that Jesus had with the social elite or the religious establishment or the wealthy or the rich, most of the time those encounters were not positive. They were what? They were negative because he was challenging those people, those social classes, and he was speaking truth to them in ways that they did not want to hear. And most of the time they got very angry or offended at him. And on multiple occasions, they tried to kill him. And of course, we know eventually that is exactly what they did. The, the religious leaders of uh, Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin and the high priests. And these elites, these social elites, they were so angry at what Jesus had said and did and what he represented that they conspired to murder him. That's what he got out of it. And so the phenomenon that we see here is that, again, Jesus focused the majority of his time and his attention on what I would call the social misfits of his day. And here's what's interesting is that he spent a lot of time, if not the majority of his ministry, engaging and ministering to people who, who could give him nothing in return. They had nothing else to offer him. And yet that's where he sent, seemed to spend the majority of his time. So those are the people that I think most of us today would consider the people who are unclean or maybe they're unsafe or unbecoming or they're unrighteous. And unfortunately, these are people that are avoided at all costs. And you know, you all know what I'm talking about. We all know that there are certain people and places and, and environments, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that looks like later, okay? I, I don't want to mislead you, but we try to avoid the, the things and the people and the places that make us feel uncomfortable. And yet, when we look at the lives and the ministry of Jesus, he's right in the middle of it all. Engaging people who are for the most part, written off by the rest of society. And so I want us to pay attention as we look at encounters with Jesus because when he's seeking these people out, these are people that everybody else had given up on for the most part. These are people that have probably given up on themselves, okay? They've reached a point where they're like, well, this is just who I am. I'll never be anything different. This is what everybody thinks about me anyway, so I might as well just go ahead and, and be that person. There's no hope for me. And so Jesus sees, and he still sees, but he saw something, and he still sees something in these type of people. He sees a redeeming quality that nobody else is willing to see, or at least some of us don't want to see. And so, again, that's where I began to examine my own life. One of the things, and anybody who's ever spent time in full-time ministry will understand this. 
One of the things that I struggle with the most is being on staff, and this is my full-time vocation, is that if you're not careful as a pastor, full-time minister, somebody on staff at a church, if you're not careful, you can look up and years can go by and you realize that you're only spending your time around other Christians. That you're, you're insulated. And I love you guys, by the way. I love spending time with you. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're not careful, and again, I've had to look at my life, and I've gone weeks, months, and I look up, and I'm saying, you know what? In the rhythm of my life, coming, I'm up at the church every day. Here we are Sundays and Wednesdays. We're, we're around other believers constantly. And there's good things. Again, we need to come together. We need that encouragement. We need that support. We need all of those things. But if we're not careful, we can spend the rest of our lives only engaging and encountering people of the faith, other believers, when there's a whole other world out there of people who will never darken the doors of this building, ever. And it kind of begs the question, I'm going to pose this to you, and I'll let you answer it in your own heart, but if Jesus were to show up today in our culture, 2023, right? If he were here walking the earth today, where do you think Jesus would be spending the most of his time? It's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Like, will he be hanging out in the halls of Congress and the Supreme Court? Up at the, up, maybe he might need to call, he might need to go up in the halls of Congress. You know, I mean, I mean, we, we really think about it, you know, would, be, would he be hanging out with all the intellectuals at the universities and the academies or all the corporate, you know, multi-billionaires that are, um, you know, the tech, the tech gurus and all these, you know, would he be in those classes, would that be where he would be spending the most of his time or would he be spending his time somewhere else? something interesting for us to think about and so that's where we pick up in Luke chapter 5 I just want you to look at a few verses here and we'll we'll kind of march through this together but the first thing I want to do is read Luke 5 we're going to be in verse 27 this morning and this is when Jesus calls Levi or Levi however you want to pronounce it who is also known as Matthew, okay, so when we say Levi here, he, he, is, he is the Matthew of the gospel of Matthew, same guy, right, he just, this was his Jewish name, Matthew was probably his Greek title, but this is the same guy, so don't get confused, so look at uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 27, it says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Look at verse 28, leaving everything, leaving everything. Don't miss what that implies right there. When Levi walked out that day, he knew, he knew the cost of what it was going to, he knew what it was going to cost him to follow Jesus. He's walking away from his old life, right? He's, he's leaving everything behind. Look what it says. He rose and followed him. And then I love this. And then Levi made a great feast in his house. What did he do? He threw Jesus a, he threw him a party. You know, hey, what's, what's a better way to show appreciation for Jesus? I'm now giving, I'm, I'm following him. I'm really not 100% sure what all this is going to involve. I, I know he, there's something about him that's worth me leaving my, my old life behind to follow him. So the best thing I know to do right now is I'm going to throw him a party. He's going to invite all his what? All his friends. All his friends, right? 
he made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's a lot to unpack here. So the first thing I want to just, first observation that I have here is that Jesus didn't wait for the lost to come to him, but intentionally initiated relationships with what I call the rough crowd. It's what I call the rough crowd. So, question. If God were to have waited for man to seek him out, how long would God be waiting? He'd still be waiting to this day. For none is righteous, not even one, right? No one seeks God. That's what the scriptures tell us. That we are all like sheep who've gone astray. We're lost going about our own way, right? We're on that broad way, that, that easy road that's leading down to destruction. If we're not careful, we just get swept up with the world and we just get carried along down this road of destruction. And it's easy. We don't have to do much. It just carries us along. We just go with the flow. That's who we are naturally in our own sinful natures. Okay, this is just who we are. And Jesus fortunately, did not wait for mankind to go looking for him. He knew that we would never do that, and so he had to come looking for us. That's what the whole incarnation is about. Is it for God so loved, right, that he gave and Jesus came, and he came on a rescue mission, right? We did that, what we just sang, this is my rescue story. Jesus came into this world on a rescue mission to initiate, to seek us out, even when we were not willing to um, seek him out at all. And the scriptures even say he demonstrates his love toward us even even though while we were yet sinners, he still died for us, right? So, So this is the heart of God. And so we see that Jesus is initiating relationships with a very rough crowd. Let's talk about Matthew for a second, or Levi. Now, if you don't know what it meant to be a tax collector in the days of Jesus... They were probably the most despised people on the planet, all right? Now, how many of you have an IRS agent for a friend? We got a few of you out there, yeah? But, you know, you you probably think of the IRS the way that most of us think about the IRS, right? I mean, nobody enjoys paying taxes. Nobody enjoys being audited. Nobody enjoys the time of year that we're in right now, April 15th, and all that kind of stuff that's coming up. And so we have a very negative perception, a very negative concept about the IRS. But guys, that's nothing compared to what tax collectors were in the days of Jesus. They were the worst of the worst. Number one, they were traitors to their own people because they're not collecting taxes for the Jewish people. Who are they collecting taxes for? For the Romans. So they had already made a deal with the enemy 
They were notorious for fraudulent activity, for skimming off the top, for padding their own pockets with people's money. In other words, if Rome taxed people 10%, the tax collector will come up and say, well, you actually owe me 15% because he's going to put the extra five in his pocket. And there was nothing that the people could do about it. They had no really power, so they would exploit people, they would abuse people, so they were notorious thieves and crooks and con artists. They were um, notorious for living among a social class that was um, full of vagabonds and thieves and criminals and prostitutes and carousers and drunks and all of that. So this was, this was the social class that you need to picture when you think about Levi, Matthew. This is who he was. Just the fact that Jesus came to him and asked him to follow him to become one of his disciples, that in of itself was a scandalous thing for Jesus to do. Because for the rest of his peers, the rest of his culture, the rest of his community, they hated Matthew. They hated Levi. They had written him off completely. Once he turned his back on his people and he started working for the Romans as a tax collector, they're like, nope, you're dead to us. And yet here comes Jesus initiating a relationship with this kind of an individual. Now, here's something about Matthew and his, and his social class. And, and this is something that we see in the world, and, and I think we miss this sometimes as Christians. There's something that unites this group of people. Now, we like to call them heathens or rebels or sinners or whatever it is. You know, in our mind, we think about those people out there. You know, they spend their life, you know, uh, partying up on the weekends or they're, they're living, the, you know, shady lives or sinful lives or they don't really have any respect or fear the Lord. They're certainly not spiritual in any capacity. They're just out there kind of doing their own thing. But what you'll find in those circles is that they have a tremendous amount of community. They, they bond around this idea that they're all fitting in this social misfit, misfit class. And so that's why when you go around some of these circles and in some of these uh, pockets of, of society, they have deeper, and I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes they have closer and deeper relationships than we even do in the what? In the church. I've seen it. Because they are fiercely loyal to each other. So do you think it was a mistake that when Jesus came to, Matt, to Matthew and called him to follow him, don't you think he took into consideration into an account that Matthew has a whole group of what? Friends. That if I can get Matthew's attention and get Matthew or Levi to follow me, then hopefully that's going to give me an audience with all of his what? With all of his friends. See, Jesus does everything intentionally. So he knew that he would have an opportunity to reach a greater group of people by going to Matthew, who probably had a great amount of influence. It sounds like it because he's the one throwing the party. He's the one inviting all of his friends for Jesus to be there. And so we know that Matthew or Levi would have never, would have never sought Jesus out on his own. I really don't, I really believe that. I believe if Jesus had waited for Matthew to come to him and say, hey, could I be part of your group? Could, could I be one of your disciples? How long do you think Jesus would be waiting for that? He'd be still waiting. Jesus knew that. Matthew probably knew that. So the principle here is that God always initiates relationship with us. He's always coming to us. He's always coming for us. He's always wanting to have a relationship with us. And he's coming to engage us. And we have the chance, the opportunity to respond 
do that. And so here we see Matthew, Levi. Again, I'm using that interchangeably. So he's going he's gonna to give Jesus a party. He's going to throw him a party. He's going he's gonna to try to express some type of um, appreciation for, for seeking him out. Now, let's think about this for a second. Here we have Matthew. He's in this, remember, the, the kind of lifestyle that he was in, the, the kind of people that he associated with, the kind of things and behaviors that they were probably very accustomed to doing. When Jesus comes to this party, do you think this is a squeaky clean party? It's not. I'm pretty certain that they were going to eat. They were probably going to eat good, probably overeat, indulge maybe. There's probably going to be some drink. They're probably going to drink a little bit too much. There's probably some carousing going on there. There's probably some stuff, some who knows what's going on. Probably throwing dice in the corner. Who knows, right? I mean, this, this is a shady bunch of people. Who, who knows what's happening at this party? Did that prevent Jesus from going? It did not, okay? So this is where we're going to kind of start getting into this idea of, all right, if Jesus is setting this example for us where he's willing to engage a rough crowd, then what does that look like for you and me? Well, here's the next thing I need to share with you. You ready? Very important. Jesus sat with sinners. He did not sin with them. Let me say that again. We need to know the difference. You ready? Jesus was willing to sit with sinners, but he did not what? He did not sin with them. Okay? This is a very critical point. Did Jesus say it? But he said, all right, probably so. It was an alcoholic drink. I, it was not a sin. I'd hate to say it, but he probably had a drink. Maybe it was an alcoholic drink. I, it was Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard and a sinner because he's sitting with them in that context. So undoubtedly, they had some kind of reason to accuse him of being a drunk. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he did. But again, chances are in this context, Jesus is sitting with this group of people. He's engaging them in a, in a personal way, in a personal relationship. But the, but the big difference is, we've got to know this difference, is that he did not cross over into what? Into sin. Because we know Jesus is sinless. He never once broke a commandment of God. He never once did or said anything that was contrary to the word of God. And so this did not stop Jesus from attending this party, right? He didn't shun the invite. But he saw it as an opportunity. This is what I'm getting at here, guys. Is that we have a choice to make when it comes to how do we engage the world around us, okay? We can either totally isolate and cut ourselves off from the rest of the world and maybe pray that God will send people to our church. How's that working out? I mean, most people that visit a church today are people that already have some type of a religious background or maybe they're already believers. Maybe they're looking for a new church home. It's almost, it almost never occurs that a person is out there in the world, in love with the world, living in sin, living this kind of a lifestyle. It's almost never heard of that they just wake up one day and say, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to go to church today. Doesn't happen anymore. We live in what's called a post-Christian culture. What does that mean? It means that maybe when many of you were growing up, Christianity and church was part of our what? It was just part of the culture. I mean, stores closed on Sundays. Everybody, even if you didn't really have a, 
a real relationship with God or you at least had enough respect for Christ and the church that you respected Sundays and you would even show up to church a lot of times just because that was what you were what? Supposed to do. It's just part of the culture. Those days are gone, guys. Over. We're no longer living in that, in that culture. That's one of the problems that we have, I believe, right now as believers in this modern day, in this culture, is that we're still operating on the mindset that we live in the Bible Belt, we live in a Christian culture, we just open doors on Sunday and people are going to what? They're just going to show up. That's not the case anymore. Now, I'm thankful that you showed up today, but again, I would, I would dare say 99.9% .9 of the people in this room are people who probably already have a relationship with the Lord, church is important to you, and you have some type of a, of a background of uh, religious or spiritual background. So we don't live in that generation anymore. We don't live in that culture anymore. And so the Pharisees, they begin to accuse Jesus of participating in their sin, but we know, and I'll say it again, Jesus sat with sinners, but he did not sin with them, okay? Now, I think the same thing applies to us, and this is where I'm going to get into some, some areas of what I call wisdom. Okay, we need to have wisdom in all of this. We need to be willing to sit with sinners. Let me just ask you, when is the last time you were around a bunch of lost people? Now, you may work in that environment every single day. I'll never forget um, the first time my son ever got a job, like in a, like, it was like a, a warehouse job. And he came home the first day and he was just blown away. Like, man, Dad, I didn't realize everybody talked like that. You know, I mean, just dropping cuss words and just filthy mouth and everybody. I mean, it was just like everybody's like, I didn't, you know, he, he had been grown up as a preacher's kid, right? He had been around who? Church people his whole life. You know, very sheltered in, in a lot of sense. He goes out to work in a real world environment and realizes all of a sudden, wait a minute, not everybody is like that. And found out real quick that that's a, it's a context that's all too common in our culture and our world today. And many of you may work in those kind of environments. But, but beyond a place that you have to work, let me just ask you the question. When is the last time you went out of your way like Jesus did intentionally going to be around other people that we would be considered those outcasts, that rough crowd, those marginalized people groups? When is the last time you did that? Instead of treating people like that as, you know, untouchables, think about the lepers that Jesus was willing to cleanse. I mean, again, we could go through the, all the Gospels. There's so many encounters that Jesus has where he's willing to go out of his way to touch people, to reach people, to engage people that nobody else was willing to reach. So we need to be willing to meet people on their terms, sometimes, many times, in their environment in order to reach them. Now let's talk about wisdom for just a second. What does that look like on a daily basis? I can't answer that question for all of you. Let me give you a couple of scenarios. Um, if you have struggled in the past with, let's say, alcoholism, or you know that alcohol is a stumbling block for you, then you probably don't want to go hang out at the bar. Understand? Your, your way to reach a group, a marginalized group of people or a, you know, a, an 
outcast group of people or an unbelieving community, your way may look different than somebody else's way. Because you, first of all, you have to know who. You need to have wisdom to understand yourself. What are your weaknesses and temptations? So there are limitations to what we can do and how we can engage people. Okay, there, there's a variety of all kind of platforms and contexts. You know, one of, the, one of the easiest ways for me, I think one of, the, one of the greatest platforms for us to reach people from all walks of life is sports. Everybody typically loves what? Loves sports. So you go to the Grizzlies game or you go tailgating at the football game or you're going to the high school basketball games or you're, whatever it may be. You, you go to college football games, whatever that looks like. And at that moment, in that time, you can build relationships with people from all walks of life. Even though it's the, it's the sport itself is bringing you together in that moment in time, it's not about the sport. It's about building what? Relationships. But that's just one example. There's, there's hundreds of examples, hunting, fishing, sports, all kind of recreational activity. I mean, you can just go on and on and on. Music brings people together. There's all kind of things that bring people together. So you have to have enough wisdom to understand yourself. It's like, is, is this week, is it Mardi Gras going on? Was that last week? It's like, can you go on mission at Mardi Gras? It's a legitimate question, right? Like 99% of the people that go to Mardi Gras are going for one reason. To what? Party. Is that a wise situation? Can you make a difference by going to a place like Mardi Gras down in New Orleans and spend the week and party it up with people and expect to really make an impact for the kingdom? Is that going to work? No, it's not going to work. But let's say, for instance, you are a local church in New Orleans and you know Mardi Gras is coming every single week and you find interesting and practical ways to go and engage people, maybe on the street, maybe setting up a tent, maybe offering bottled water, maybe just say, having a prayer booth. Who knows? There's a hundred different ways that you may be able to go in a context like that and engage people in a very practical way that's not overly judgmental, that's not, you know, preaching the, you know, hellfire and brimstone and telling everybody that they're going to hell or whatever that may be. That may be effective in some ways. I don't think that's very effective most of the time. I think most of the time people just want you to look at them like they are a person. They just want you to see them as a person. And when you can engage people on a personal level and they show that they see you have no ulterior motives, you're not trying to get anything from them in return, you just want to love them, you want to show love to them in a practical way and build relationships with them, yeah, you may be able to go on mission at something like Mardi Gras. So let me ask you a question. Is that where Jesus would be? Would he be right there in the middle of people trying to reach people in the middle of that chaos, in the middle of that, and all that heathen, rebellious activity? Maybe, maybe so. Because that's what we're talking about. You can go and engage and have relationships and sit with people and be around people, but you don't have to cross over and participate in their sin. But you got to know yourself. You got to know yourself and you got to have wisdom. So if we're being tempted to sin or compromise in any way, then we need to rethink it. Maybe that's somebody else's job to do. We need to know our boundaries so that we're prepared to face temptation. Okay? Now here's what I would say to keep it simple. The way that we need to look to engage other people, sinners, the lost, the unbelieving culture out there, is that we need to probably do it within the natural rhythm of our own life. Okay, I'm not asking you today to necessarily do anything different about changing 
the schedule that you have or the routine that you have, but I'm asking you to open up your eyes and be more observant to the people that are around you. Maybe you frequent a coffee shop. Maybe you're one of those people you'd like to go to the coffee shop once or twice a week, and you go to the same coffee shop every single week. Guess what? There's probably other people in that coffee shop that also go to that same coffee shop every single week. Maybe you need to open your eyes and try to start initiating conversations with those people and sit with them, get to know them, and then eventually pray that 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 relationship will lead to you being able to lead them to Jesus. Be able to show the love and and the light of Jesus Christ to them so that you can actually have an impact and influence on them. But if you just go to the coffee shop and never talk to anybody and close yourself off and sit alone and never engage anybody, to me, we're wasting a what? We're wasting a great opportunity. Because the people that are sitting in the coffee shops or in the bars on the weekends or going to the casinos or whatever it may be, let me tell you, let me remind you, are they coming here? They're probably not. They might if you what? If you invite them. They might if you build a relationship with them. They might if they see genuine love and concern and care from you. They might eventually feel like, hey, this person is real. This person is really, this person really loves me. Kind of what we talked about last week, remember? When you can accept people as they are, they will eventually change on their own. It's, it's a fascinating concept. So we can love and accept people as they are knowing that God doesn't want to leave them in that place, right? He has a greater purpose and plan for them to make them into something greater, to lead them out of that life into, into the light and into the love of Jesus Christ. So these are things that we need to always think about. <clears throat> getting to know people, listening to them, looking them in their eyes, making them feel like they're, they're humans, that they matter. This is what Jesus did. He sat with sinners, but he obviously did not sin with them. And the last thing is this. Jesus spent most of his time pursuing, let me just give you this, the poor in spirit. Instead of wasting time on the proud and the self-righteous. Now let me, let me just qualify that statement for just a second. Does that mean that Jesus doesn't care about the people who are proud and self-righteous? Doesn't mean that. As a matter of fact, we do see instances in Jesus' ministry where he was able to reach people who were of that socioeconomic class. Or maybe they were very much self-righteous in the religious establishment. Or maybe they were very proud and felt like they didn't need God or whatever it may be. Jesus still cares about those people, but in a practical sense, he only had a limited amount of time. He wanted to reach as many people as he possibly could, so where did he turn his attention? Jesus said, I'm going to turn my attention. I'm not going to beat my head up against the wall trying to talk to people all the time who don't need me or who don't feel like or think that they what, that they need me. I'm going to go to the people who already feel terrible about themselves. I'm going to go to the people who are already spiritually bankrupt, and they know it. Now, they may still be living out there in sin. They may have given up. They may be living in despair. They may be angry at God. They may, be, uh, they may have all a, no, a, different, a number of emotions going on in their heart. But the difference is, is that they at least know that something is what? Something's wrong with me. You see, if you don't feel like anything's wrong with you, then do you have a need for Jesus? Absolutely not. That's what he said, right? I didn't come to call the righteous. The the man who's healthy doesn't need a a doctor, okay? 
Some of us may be sitting around thinking, you know what? I think I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. There's no reason for me to go to the doctor. And if you feel fine and you feel great and you think everything's good, then why would you go to the doctor? There's really, I mean, it's a very practical question, right? But Jesus is saying, listen, but those people who know that they are sick, sin sick, spiritually sick, the poor in spirit, those people, guess what? They at least know enough that they need to be healed. There's something broken. And here's, the, here's the, the principle in all of that. God gives grace to the what? God gives grace to who? The humble. God gives grace to the humble. But he opposes the proud. Now I want, to think, I want you to think about that for just a second. That's one of the most sobering statements in all of Scripture. You see, it's not that God is neutral against the proud. He's not, even, he's not in a neutral place. He is actively what? Against you. So if you're proud and you don't think that you have any need for God and you think that you're going to stand on your own self-righteousness and you think that you're, you're going to make it through life without God, you don't need him, you know, whatever that may be, or maybe, you, maybe there's, a, a, there's a lot of people in the church who are very religiously self-righteous. And they're, they're depending on their own merits and their own good works and their own righteous deeds. They think that's what's making them right with God. Here's what's terrifying. Those people that they are proud and they're self-righteous, God is actively working what? Against them. That's terrifying. It'd be bad enough if he wasn't working for us. It's a whole other ballgame that he's working what? Against us. But what does the scripture say? God gives grace to who? To the humble. So where did Jesus spend the most of his time in ministry? He went to minister to people who were what? Who were humble. He did not waste much time fighting with people who were proud and self-righteous. So what should that look like in our life? That's a legitimate question. People who are too proud to admit they're wrong or acknowledge their own need for God or acknowledge their own sin. Those people, I'm not saying that they're hopeless, but they are very difficult to reach. That's why if you go to some of our um, educational institutions in, in this land, people who are the intellectual elites, the professors and the people who are the scientists and all those people who are generally speaking, they're atheistic in their uh, worldview, Guess what? They don't have any need for who? They don't have any need for God, any need for Jesus. You go up there and try to share the gospel with people who are in that mind frame and that uh, frame of mind, who feel like that they have they, that there's no such thing as God and, and they, they don't have any need for God. You're gonna get you're gonna get nowhere. Typically, with those people, I know God can do anything, but typically, if you spent your life trying to minister to those kind of people, you're gonna walk away frustrated because you're gonna see very little movement in those people. But if you go down here to Jackson Avenue this afternoon and you go talk to people who are living on the street and who don't know where their next meal is going to come from and who have probably lost most, if not all, the relationships that they have in their life and they're just holding on to even survive for another day and you start talking to them about Jesus, guess how they're going to respond? They're going to respond much more positively because they know that something is what? 
something's wrong. They know something's missing. They know they may not, they may not believe right away, but over time, I truly believe they're going to be more receptive to the gospel message because those people have been what? Humbled. They've been humbled in life. Don't you think Jesus would be down on Jackson Avenue? I do. So that's what we see here in this whole idea of Jesus running with a rough crowd. What does that look like in your life? I can't tell you specifically, guys, but I know that if we spend our days and our weeks and our months and our years only being around other believers, only being around other church people, we're not fulfilling the mission that Jesus Christ has given us to fulfill. We're just not. I'm, I'm talking to myself. Again, as a preacher, it's, it's even harder because, again, I told you that. Sometimes I feel like that's all that I do is spend my time around other believers, and I love you guys, and I love, I love every second of it. And there's a great purpose in it, and there's nothing wrong with it, but that can't be the only group of people that I spend time around. That's where we have to be intentional about going out to reach other people. People that we normally would avoid because they make us feel what? Uncomfortable. If you came to Jesus because you wanted to live a comfortable life, you came to the wrong place. He's going to ask you repeatedly to step outside of your comfort zone. I mean, that's what Jesus did. That's the example that he set for us. And so it's only those people who acknowledge their spiritual sickness. These are the poor in spirit. Their brokenness, their sinfulness. They do understand how desperately they need healing and forgiveness. Now listen, they may be believing a lot of lies too. They may be believing that God can't love them. They may be believing that, they, that they're beyond saving. They may be believing that they're too, that, that they're under condemnation or shame or guilt. Or the, the devil has his way to keep all kind of people stuck from believing in Jesus Christ. I understand that. But I will say that the people who are the most humble, who are the most broken, I think that as believers right now in this generation, in this culture, that's where we need to be spending the majority of our time in engaging those people because that's exactly what Jesus would be doing. That's what he'd be doing. I don't think there's any way to dispute that. But there's one more thing I want to share with you that I think is very critical in understanding this whole thing. I want you to flip over two chapters to Luke chapter 7. And we're going to finish up right here. Look at Luke chapter 7. I'm going to pick up in verse 36. Luke 7, 36. Let, let's, let's finish this here. I want to share one more important and profound truth with you about this whole idea about running with the rough crowd. Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him again. So he's invited to go eat. Now, this is the one in the Pharisee's house. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. That's a very valuable, valuable commodity. And standing behind him at his feet, what's she doing? She's weeping. Don't miss that. Weeping. That is a sign of brokenness. It's a sign of what? Repentance. 
conviction. He's weeping. Was the Pharisee weeping around Jesus? No, he didn't have any need of a physician. He's a Pharisee, right? He's righteous in his own eyes. And yet here comes this sinner, this questionable woman. She's weeping, and she begins to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with this ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he's talking to himself, look at what he says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Don't you see it? She's the untouchable. She's got a disease, right? She's, she's unclean. Avoid at all costs, right? That's what he's thinking to himself. That's how Jesus answers him. He said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. He said, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they both could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt, obviously. He said, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many. See, Jesus did not deny the fact that the woman had what? She had many sins. That's not the question here. Her sins, which are many, are what? Are forgiven. For she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little and he said to her your sins are forgiven and then those who were at the table with him began to say who is this who even forgives sins and he said to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace maybe just maybe part of this whole thing about Jesus and his example and his ministry and his intentional actions to go to those, the least of those, the humble, the broken, the sinner, the lame, the beggar, the destitute. Maybe part of this whole thing is that God knows something that maybe we need to learn. Is that people who have been forgiven much will do what? They will love more. People who understand how much God has shown them mercy, how much God has shown them grace, how much God has forgiven them of their sin. Those people, those people are so much more willing and likely to live a life devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ because they will understand the depth of his love that he has canceled a debt that they could never what? They could never pay back. So when somebody cancels a debt that you could never ever pay back, then you do feel a sense of indebtedness in a sense to that person, but your love for that person will never stop because you'll always remember what they did for you by setting you free from this debt that you never in a million years could pay back. 
And so here we have a woman who everybody else would look at in society and say she's not even worth touching, and yet she loved Jesus more than anybody, especially more than that Pharisee. Maybe that's what this thing is all about. We need to be intentional. We need to be practical. We need to be wise. And here's the thing, guys. We need to take advantage of every single opportunity. We only have a limited amount of time, just like Jesus. His time was very limited, maybe three, three and a half years as far as his ministry. We might have 10, 20, 30. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord 50 years. Let me ask you the question. How many people out there, how many people have you and I reached? that are never going to come to know Jesus. How many? I mean, don't you think in the lifetime of a believer, maybe we could say we reached one? You think that's, is that unreasonable? I reached one person who is not a believer. One person who didn't want anything to do with God. One person who was living a, a questionable lifestyle. One person who's out there living in the world. I reached one. Just think about it. If everybody in this room, I don't know the number in here. Let's say there's 200 people in this room. If everybody in this room reached one person, guess what? And we were able to truly introduce them to Jesus Christ and bring them into a relationship with, with us and then eventually with the Lord. And then they end up, they do come. They, they do come because they're changed now. Now they love Jesus so much because they understand how much he's forgiven them. And how much he loves them. And all of a sudden we go from 200 to what? To 400. To 400. Just like that. And then we continue to do that. And then guess what? The next week there's, or the next month there's 800. Not because we're doing anything radical. Not because we're, we're you know, introducing the, a revival campaign or anything. Just simply because each individual in this room has enough in them to intentionally engage one person. It may not happen in a week. It may not happen in a month. But my goodness, y'all, don't y'all think it should be happening at some point? At some point. So what's stopping us? What's preventing us? I, I don't know. I can't answer that for you. I can, I can answer it for myself. You want to be honest? What's stopping me? Selfishness. Fear. Laziness. Busyness. Sometimes we stay so busy about doing all this work that we forget about what the Lord's really calling us to do. I don't know what your answer is. I don't know what it is. A lack of compassion? I don't know. But guys, we need to really seriously examine ourselves and really ask ourselves, if I'm here for one purpose and one purpose alone, remember what we talked about last week? Jesus says, come and follow me. I will make you catchers of men. We're supposed to be fishing for people. If that's our purpose here, the reason he's got us here is to still engage, to still reach out, to still catch people for the kingdom. And that's the reason that we're here. And yet we've been walking with Jesus for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and we have not caught a single person for Jesus. Don't you think there's something wrong with that? I don't know how else to put it. Do, do, do you want to change that? I guess is the question. Do, do you want to see that change in your life? 
Not so that we can fill up this building and say, oh, look at Christ Church. Hey, we, we, we doubled in our membership this year. Not, that's not the reason that we're doing this. It's not about so that we can brag about our numbers. That's not what I'm talking about. It's about introducing a person to Jesus Christ that will affect the destiny of eternity for them. That they will now become children of God and be in heaven forever with the Lord, entering into his kingdom. That's what it's about. It's about people being saved. Isn't that what he just told the woman? He said, what, is he, what did he just tell her? He said, go. Your faith has what? Saved you. Your faith has saved you. That's what it's about. So guys, whatever it is in your life, it's going to be an individual decision. It's going to be an individual choice. But I'm going to ask you, as we ever ask Lynn to come on back up, as we're going to sing one more song. And I just, I just want to challenge you right now is that Make that a prayer of your heart today, that you want to see that change, and that we do want to follow the example of Jesus, and how he was willing to go to the uncomfortable places to reach the people who were outcasts, who were misfits, who were written off and marginalized by the rest of society, and guys, I think that he's calling us to go and do the very same thing. Spend this time in prayer. And whatever it is that God is leading you to do, just, just respond to that. Just respond to that in faith. Would you bow with me? Father, I love you, and, and I thank you for all that you've done and who you are. And I know, Lord, that, that you have a purpose for all of us, and that purpose, you tell us, is to go and make disciples. That purpose is to go and, and be fishers of men. And, Lord, we're not, we're just, honestly, we're just not doing a very good job of that. Because we got to go fishing if we're going to catch anybody, Lord. And, and many of us are, are just not going. We're not engaging. We're not reaching, Lord. Forgive us of that. Forgive me, Father. And I just pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that whatever it is that we need to do to change that in our life, Lord, that we wouldn't wait, that we wouldn't make any more excuses, but, God, that we would genuinely want to do this, that we would genuinely want to make a difference to truly be fishers of men. And so, Lord, as we sing this last song, I pray that you would just, just, just minister to us, Lord. Just reveal your will to us. Help us, Lord, to know what to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, guys, as we finish this song.